Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. I hope you all enjoyed the new theme song. Thanks, as always, to the great Tom Judson for the wonderful arrangement. Today, I am so happy to welcome my guest, one of Broadway's most influential figures, Daryl Roth. Daryl Roth is a 38-time Tony-nominated producer who made her Broadway debut with Nick and Nora and went on to produce such shows as Kinky Boots, The Normal Heart, The Year of Magical Thinking, Indecent, The Tale of the Allergist's Wife, How I Learned to Drive, and more. She is also on the board of Lincoln Center, the Kennedy Center, and the Vineyard Theater. Her namesake, the Daryl Roth Theater, is located on 15th Street and is currently home to the hit production of Titanic, and she is also the producer of the upcoming Broadway production of Life of Pi, which starts performances March 9th. And now, without further ado, here's Daryl Roth. And so I'd love to begin by asking you, how did you first become interested in theater? And how did that happen? Oh, well, that's many, many years ago. I was lucky enough to have parents who adored musical theater and brought me and my sister to see, you know, those appropriate musicals as we were growing up. We um, lived in New Jersey, so it was not that difficult to get to New York. And um, we were introduced at a very young age. And I think that that just planted the seeds of my loving theater so much. And what were some of those shows that you saw early on? Oh, well, you have to remember how old I am. (laughs) You know, things like Peter Pan and Camelot and, Uh oh, I don't know. Things that were more appropriate. We saw a lot of children's theater growing up. And also, as I mentioned, living in um, New Jersey, we went to the Paper Mill Playhouse often, and they had some wonderful shows both for children and, you know, families. So... I think that the combination of just being exposed to theater and realizing what a great uh, feeling it was to just experience, you know, the overture and and the joy of it all, it it just stayed with me. And um, of course, I never thought I'd have a career in the theater in those days, but uh, just being a very appreciative audience member uh, is really who I was for many, many years before I began my career. Oh, yes. And where did you study in terms of college and what did you study in? Actually, I was a fine arts major. I started my college career at Syracuse University. I completed it at NYU um, and I was a fine arts major. I worked in interior design for some years, always loving theater, always going to theater, but never quite figuring out how I might find my own way into it as a profession Um, but I was a very visual person and I guess in the days that I was in college there weren't that many opportunities for a woman to get into theater unless of course she was going to be on stage there weren't that many women producers even when I began in the late 1980s so it wasn't a dream really it was just something that I didn't think was an option yeah Um, And how did you find that your experience in interior design and all that helped you once you began to work in the theater? Uh Well, I think over these years, what has been a remnant of those, you know, of my early interest in design is that I'm very visual and usually have uh, the joy of being involved and often uh, listened to (laughs) when we're in production and dealing with creative people on sets and costumes and, you know, the details of all of that. Uh, I think I have a good eye for that. And perhaps it comes from my design background, but uh, I've tried to be uh, helpful in ways that I can, where I feel uh, I, I represent, you know, 
an audience member, really. So my reaction to things is as much uh, being a producer as it is, you know, being your typical audience member of a certain age. And so <laughs> I guess that I, I, I'm not shy about offering my opinions. And on the other hand, I'm certainly uh, understanding that, you know, we hire the best creative people for their ideas and their notions. But as you know, theater is the most collaborative business. And, and so I really appreciate being involved in those areas of collaboration where I feel I can be of value. Right. And in your years seeing theater as, as an audience member before you were involved in it, did you find that you developed a sense of taste or of what would succeed? And... No, I don't think I even have that now. To tell you the truth, I don't think we ever really know what's going to be the commercial hit. I, I think we have instincts that we totally need to follow. And all of my choices have been pretty much based on what I'm relating to, what I respond to, and therefore hoping that other people will too. But in terms of being able to pick the hits, oh, it's anybody's game. <laughs> Which is why it's so important to only do things that you love and that you feel passionate about and committed to, you know, telling stories that you really feel should be, should be told and, and doing shows that, you know, have a message that you wanna be able to put out into the world because you won't know what will be successful. Certainly not financially, you never know that until it happens. Uh, one of my favorite quotes about producing is that theater deals in a different currency. And that currency is not always money. That currency is so many things, you know, what, what good theater can bring to people and offer the world is, is just far reaching. It's not always about the money. Right. And when did you start to believe that you could take an active role in theater? And how did that begin to happen? Mm -hmm. Well, I was in my 40s, actually. And I had, as I mentioned, been working in design and raising my family, always loving theater, always feeling very you know, passionate about it. And there was a point in time where I just said to myself, I wonder if there's a place for me in this business. You know, I, I am pretty good at putting things together, which is basically the simplest definition of what a producer does. And I, I started offering myself up to different nonprofit organizations in theater so that I could learn. Um, and one of the opportunities that was happily offered to me was um, a board seat at City Center. And I was put on a committee that was ultimately uh, which ultimately became the Encores program. And in those early days, and I'm going back to the late 1980s, we were talking to different people about bringing back shows, you know, and reviving them in the way that we know Encores to be. And one of the people that was collaborating on this project was Richard Maltby Jr. And so I met him and we worked together. We liked each other right away. And um, in the course of, you know, working together and getting to know each other, he invited me one night to come down to a club in the village called 88s, which sadly no longer exists. But he said, we're going, David Shire and he were presenting some of their songs. Would I like to come? And of course, I jumped at the chance. I was so thrilled and honored that they would think to invite me. And I went and I was really blown away by not just their music and their songs, but the way the songs affected me, I think it was the time in my life, it was that push of a door opening that I needed to see that maybe there's something here for me. The songs were talking about going through new chapters in life, doors closing, new doors opening. It was talking about relationships, family. It just felt to me like every song was a personal story being told to me. And I was very moved by it. At the end of the evening, I said to Richard and David, I think this could be a wonderful evening of theater. Would you let me give it a try? And I've, I've said this time and again, I don't know whose voice that was that came out of my body because I certainly didn't have the confidence or the knowledge or the experience to even say I would do that. But I did say it. 
And they looked at each other and said, sure, give it a try. I'm sure they figured, okay, you know, that will be, you know, who knows what. But I did give it a try. And we were able to get an opportunity at Williamstown Theater that summer. And we went there and we workshopped it. And it then came to New York. It was my first production. At that time, we named it Closer Than Ever. It's still done today, many years later, 30 some odd years later. And it was my very first show. And I learned a great deal, believe it or not, about producing because it was small. It was off Broadway at the Cherry Lane Theater after Williamstown. And you know, when you work off Broadway, you really do so many jobs and you learn so much. Um, and it was a great beginning. It was a great beginning for me. I loved the piece. It, it, as I said, it really spoke to me. And to this day, songs from Closer Than Ever are, are used by many, many uh, musical theater folk as their audition songs because they tell stories. And it's a way for a person auditioning to really show their emotional you know, uh, chops as well as their singing voices. So that was my first production. And from there, I went on to produce mostly off-Broadway. For many, many years, I produced off-Broadway. I felt more comfortable and I was on my learning curve. And um, I love plays. I did a few musicals, but mostly I did plays. And I looked for plays that had subjects that were important to me and that were a little challenging. Um, for one thing, it narrowed the field, field of competition because <laughs> a lot of producers weren't really looking for the challenging work. Uh, and I found that the most interesting. So that's how I started. And it's been a great career. I, I think when I look back on the 30 some odd years that I've been producing, there are certain things that have not changed. I still love stories that are about family interactions, relationships. I love stories about gender. I still love stories about my Jewish heritage. There are things that are important to me that, um, that I still champion. And has there ever been a play that you think ended up being sort of too challenging in its subject matter for audiences? Or do you find audiences usually adapt to it? I think there are subjects that are very challenging for people. And therefore, the success of the financial commercial return may not have been there. But the success of the emotional return and the response you want from an audience uh, would have been there. Uh, Ear of Magical Thinking um, by Joan Didion was a very difficult play. Uh, Wit certainly was a very difficult play emotionally. Um, it was about a woman dying of ovarian cancer. Nothing cheerful there, but it was so well received. And in fact, something wonderful happened um, as a result of Wit uh, being such an interesting story we had many people that came to see the show that were either survivors or caregivers or medical professionals. And we had, I think probably one of the first uh, of its kind, Talk Back Tuesdays. And we invited people to come and share their experiences after the play. And one of the evenings, a nurse was in the audience and she asked if we wouldn't consider, she came up to me after and asked if we wouldn't consider uh, doing a scene or two from the play uh, in the medical school that she worked at, uh, in the hospital that she worked at, I should say. And we, we did, we made those arrangements. And as a result of that, this play and these scenes that we did are taught in medical school now. It's, yes, it's about medical compassion. And it really made a difference in the world, I have to say. So sometimes to answer your question in a long-winded way, very challenging plays can have the most uh, remarkable effects on people that, that go far and wide out of the theater. It's not only the experience that an audience has sitting in their seat, it's, it's what they take away from it. I've always felt that that was really uh, one of the most treasured gifts of good theater is the experience you have sitting there and, and, and enjoying it at the moment, but it's also what do you take out with you? The Normal Heart is a good example of that, what I'm talking about. Uh, when people left the theater having seen the revival of The Normal Heart, which I produced, they wanted to do something in the world. They wanted to be like mini Larry Kramers and, and be activists, learn how to 
you know, how to do things that could help people. Many, many um, letters came to me after about how people started volunteering in different organizations, you know. Uh, Kinky Boots was another example of that. Many people saw the show and of course, just for sheer entertainment, it was so brilliant and fabulous and the music was great, but people left um, really taking to heart the line from the show is that you change the world when you change your mind and many people did. Yeah. I got some wonderful letters from young people who said they had the strength and confidence to come out to their families after seeing Kinky Boots. We had conversely letters from parents who said, I'm so glad I was able to see Kinky Boots and share it with my son or daughter who then felt more comfortable, you know, becoming their true selves and things like that, that, you know, you're not quite sure how theater will affect people in the long run. And um, that's the beauty of it all for me, really. You know, you can just, you can really take something out of the theater with you. You know, it stays with you in your heart and your mind. It might uh, encourage you to kind of take a new path or as I said, volunteer in an organization or even just think about things differently in your own life. That's the beauty of it. Oh, yes. That is really wonderful. And you mentioned with um, Closer Than Ever that it started in Williamstown and then came into New York. And yes. do you generally think that there should be some sort of out-of-town tryout process or something like that? I do. I think it's really good to be able to uh, work on a new piece outside of the limelight. And it could be in New York in a nonprofit theater, for example, you know, or it could be just out of town. But I think to open up something uh, directly into a commercial run on Broadway or even off, it's kind of scary. It's nice to have that extra step, you know, to refine things and, and to make sure you've got it right. I, I think it's helpful. Sometimes it doesn't work. Uh, one example in my career was Edward Albee's play, The Goat, or Who is Sylvia? We didn't want to do that out of town on purpose because we didn't want people to start talking about it in the wrong way. If you know the play, it was about love, really, but there was a goat involved. <laughs> we didn't want people to start talking about the play as if it was about bestiality, which it was not. It was about love of all kinds. And... That was a play that we made the producing decision to open directly on Broadway. Ordinarily, I wouldn't do that. Ordinarily, I would like to have the opportunity to do work outside of the city or certainly in a protected environment. That's really more the point, right? A protected environment and see how it goes. And then you can take it from there. Um, the exception to that rule might be something that's very small. I've done things in, I have a little theater on 15th Street and um, there are two spaces. One is 300 seats and the other is 99 seats. And I've done new work in the 99 seat theater straight off, you know, without having any kind of out of town or other tryout because it's small enough that you can work on something. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't harm it in that way. So, but generally to answer you, yes, an out of town tryout, especially for something that's coming to Broadway is really advisable in my mind. And when you were starting out off-Broadway and producing, what was the process like of finding a theater and all that since you weren't as established yet with? Well, in the early days, it was interesting to note that off-Broadway was very, very popular and there weren't enough theaters for all the shows that wanted to find homes. So it was always tricky. You know, you had to have something that appealed to the theater owner, uh, whether it was the play itself or somebody who was starring in it or the director that had a relationship. So in those days, and I'm talking about uh, the 90s and, and early 2000s, it was always um, kind of tricky to find the right theater for the right piece. Uh, and then it seemed that Off-Broadway went a little bit out of favor. I believe it's back and, and bursting with excitement now. Um, but it's the same thing on Broadway. You have to line up to get the right theater that you want or a theater that you want because now post COVID, there's so many more plays that are, you know, and musicals, I should say, just productions that are looking for homes. Right. Uh, so you have to be able to get online, have the theater owners want your, want your production, that's the main event, and be able to have it sync 
you know, in the calendar of life, when everything comes together, when you get the capitalization, when the cast is all put together, when the show is ready to go. And you have to be concerned about the schedules of your cast and your director. And so many things have to align to make it work. It's like a big puzzle. It's like a big puzzle. And I believe your first or one of your first plays that you produced on Broadway was, or musicals, was Nick and Nora. And yes. what was it like working on that show with Arthur Lawrence? And Well, we can say that the, um, <laughs> I'll start with the end of that story. Our poster hangs at Joe Allen's. <laughs> now, those of you who, who understand that, Joe Allen's wall is the wall of flops. <laughs> And Mick and Nora is proudly there. It was a very interesting opportunity for me because it was early in my career. And um, I was brought into the production again through Richard Maltby, who we mentioned earlier was the creator of Closer Than Ever, my first production. Um, he, Arthur Lawrence and Charles Strauss were working on Nick and Nora. It had the most glorious cast. Joanna Gleason, Barry Bostwick, I mean, a number of wonderful people. But I think in retrospect, what happened is that the creators really didn't share the same vision. It's a very simple thing to say, but it's monumental. And so they weren't really ever able to get on the same page. And I think that's what derailed it. Um, I was a junior associate producer. I was just almost you know, there to learn and you know, be a fly on the wall. I certainly wasn't uh, adding much to any of these conversations, but I certainly was learning a great deal. And the big lesson that I came away from is that the creative team truly has to share a vision. You can't be at odds with one another when you're trying to create something as complex and, and difficult as a new musical. Right. So the experience was valuable on every level, actually. I look back and I think, I learned a great deal. I learned a great deal. Oh, yes. And I would love to ask about a collaborator of yours, a producing partner, which was Margot Lyon, who recently passed. And it's wonderful. Yeah, she was one of the first women producers that I met when I declared that I was going to jump into the pool or dive into the pool, you know, head first, which was crazy. She was very kind to me. She was one of the very few women producing. She and Liz McCann were the two people that I did work with that were two women that had come before me. She and Liz McCann, she and I shared six Edward Albee plays that we produced together. She was wonderful. She came from the ranks of general management. She and Nell Nugent worked together for many years in, uh, in management before she became a producer. And I learned a great deal from Liz as well. She and I were a very good team. People used to say we were a good yin and yang because I was um, uh, much quieter. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say that much, but when I had something to say, apparently people listened. Uh, Liz was great at the numbers and the management. I was much better at the visual and the artistic. So we were good together. And Edward loved us both and he trusted us. And that was, that was a wonderful part of my career to have the opportunity to produce his work. That was, that's one of my special moments. Oh, yes. And to you, what makes an ideal playwright to collaborate with as a producer? Uh, someone who trusts you, who is willing to listen to your thoughts and comments, realizing that the playwright has the final word, of course. Uh, Paula Bogle and I have a wonderful relationship and I think our relationship is built on a mutual trust and admiration. And knowing, I think from the playwright's point of view, knowing that the producer only wants the best for you and for your work and believing that they will care for it like their own child, which is what should happen anyway. Um, and that's what builds the collaboration of strength, I believe. Just for one another to know that you want the best for the play. You want, the decisions are based on what's best for the play. And I think that's what makes a good collaboration also. And 
do you generally like to sort of come up with ideas for plays and find a team for them or do you prefer it to be sort of the other way around with being I like both I like both and I've done both and I have to say right now I'm working on a number of new projects two of them are ideas you know commissioning uh playwrights and two of them are uh things that came to me from other people so I'm open to both I'm open to both and I'm open to moving things that have already existed and that I've seen and a case in point is the life of Pi, which I saw in London and is, is going to be presented on Broadway in March. So that's a production that I'll be working on here, but it already existed, you know, so that's a third way um, of finding material, you know, seeing something that you love and being able to give it another life, an additional life, or a life in another city or country. Uh, so you can start at the bottom up. Like I'm working on a play that's based on a book. I'm working on a play that's based on an idea of a well-known person, someone's life. Uh, so, you know, it comes in different ways. It's all very interesting and satisfying. Obviously, the challenges are different. In each. I enjoy the variety. And I enjoy working on pieces that um, have different challenges, I guess is a way to say it. And what would make you read a book or see a movie or something like that and think that it should be adapted for the stage? Um, well, Kinky Boots is the perfect example. I was at Sundance Film, in, uh, film out in uh, Utah and I went to see this little movie called Kinky Boots and I just knew in my heart of hearts that it had the DNA to become a musical. I don't know how I knew, I just felt it. Um, I just felt it. And then other times when I read a book, it's, it's unfortunate because I, I now unfortunately read things thinking, could this be a play? Could this be a musical? You know, I have to train myself to just sit down and read a good book because it's a good book. Right. And not worry about the future life of it. Um, so I don't necessarily read books looking for things, but that said, I find that books are very good material. Uh, the musical Between the Lines that I produced last year was based on a book, and I thought that book would make a good musical. So I guess I'm kind of addicted to keeping an eye open for that possibility of, of content. And You've also produced a lot of very successful revivals of, of plays and musicals, including Hello, Dolly! and Funny Girl recently. And what uh, makes you think that it's sort of time for a revival of something? And how does that idea? Um, well, the ideas were not mine on, in either of those cases. I was asked to join an existing producing team. So I cannot take credit. But I'm always looking out for what I want the next generation to see. And, and those two in particular are just genius classic musicals. You know, um, I have a granddaughter who just graduated from college and is a theater person. And, you know, I, I want her to see all those wonderful musicals. You know, she just went to see Merrily and of course, Into the Woods, the revival, Into the Woods was genius. And I think it's important to see Sweeney Todd, all of the musicals that are part of the legacy of musical theater. It's very important for the next generation, for all generations, honestly, to see and appreciate. And then I think you understand uh, a better timeline of where musicals have come to, where they've come from. It all fits. And I don't know, I like a good revival. Whether or not the time is right is hard to know. You know, there've been many revivals of Into the Woods. I think I've seen them all. But this last one, which was from Encores to me, was one of the best. It was just so pure and so wonderfully timed in terms of the Sondheim legacy. There's just a different appreciation, I think, that surrounded it. And how involved do you like to be in the casting process? Do you attend a lot of auditions or? I like to be very involved. Um, if I am a lead producer, obviously if I'm just someone co-producing and joining another you know, uh, group of people, 
then it's not appropriate sometimes. Right. But if it's my production and I am the lead producer, then I'm in the, I'm in the casting sessions. And I love it. The only thing that's heartbreaking is that you can't give jobs to everybody because they're all talented. They just may be right for the role. But that's always hard and sad. Yeah. And how do you find that the process is different when you're working with sort of an established star like Bette Midler or Leah Michelle versus someone like Billy Porter, who was sort of becoming a star? Yes, he was becoming a star. I think that Kinky Boots really uh, put him on the map and opened up doors for him to then go on to pose and, and to be, you know, the fashionista that he is now, songwriter that he is now and the director that he is now. I think that Kinky Boots was a great, great opportunity for Billy. Um, well, the big stars, usually the relationship is more with the director than with the producers, right? I mean, the producers are there to be supportive and to be helpful. And in my case, I try to be as, you know, as welcoming and as available as anybody would want, but without being intrusive. I think that is the balance. And today to produce a big musical, revival or new, it takes so many people, so many co-producers. And, and these actors really can't be, you know, inundated with people knocking on their dressing room door. It's just not appropriate. Uh, so I try to be gracious and yet available when needed or asked for, but not invasive, which I really see people doing and find really abhorrent. It's just not right. Yeah. You have to know your place. You know, you do the work every day and you're you know, you're behind the scenes, you're helping the production, it's whether it's marketing or advertising or, you know, any kind of uh, assistance that you can do, that's the job of a producer. And it's not necessarily the job to go, you know, schmoozing around unless you are invited to schmooze around. <laughs> and especially for some of the shows that cover more sort of controversial or less talked about material, what is that process like of finding the right audience? And Oh, that's a really good question. And it, it's so tricky. You know, I start with the subject material. Who is this going to be most interesting? Two and four. The Kite Runner, for example, which we produced and it definitely had a, an international audience. It, it definitely had just the play going audience. Um, the Normal Heart, you know, my target audience would be everybody, but certainly the gay population related to this story, lived through this story. I wanted young people who didn't live through the story to know it. So that was kind of a targeted audience, if we may say. But any good play, I mean, Leopoldstadt, for example, it's not just playing to a Jewish audience. Right. It's playing to a playgoing audience who appreciates the work of Tom Stoppard, who recognizes the fact this might possibly be his last play. And yet it has a, you know, a subject matter that appeals to a Jewish audience. I think you start with who is this story most likely to appeal to? And then you go out from there. And any good work should have the ability to cross over every, you know, every line uh, and, and, be, and be appreciated for the value of the piece. I think that's, that's ultimately what we all want. But I think in terms of marketing and strategies, you do try to target the audience that you think might really appreciate it. And that can be as simple as age. You know, there are certain things that are gonna to appeal to a younger audience. So that's obvious, that's obvious. You know, I mean, and then there are plays like August Osage County, which is just a family drama dynamic it wasn't really a target audience. It was anybody and everybody who was a member of a family. You know, um, it's hard, I have to say. I mean, when I did the play about Gloria Steinem, clearly women were my target audience. But we had a lot of men and a lot of parents who brought their young daughters and sons to see this too. So, you know, you hope that you cross over. I guess that's the, that's the most honest answer I can give you. And at the same time, finding a target audience what is the process like of sort of determining what the Broadway audience at a given time is sort of looking for and I think the time that we're living in 
post-COVID or still in the midst of it somehow, people want joy. I think they want to feel happy. I think they want to leave their troubles on the doorstep, as the song says. I don't think people are looking for heavy, heavy right now. That's my sense. I know I'm not. And I would love to ask about two sort of difficult times that you were producing during um, the first being 9-11 and right after that, and then the second being the recession in 2008. I think one had to have the attitude that if the audience would be coming back, we would be there to serve it up, right? And you had to have that attitude that it's going to be tough, it's going to be challenging, it's going to take time. It's just like coming back from COVID. Uh, you know, some things that should be really successful are not because a lot of people just weren't ready to come back to the theater and sit next to another person, whether with a mask or without a mask, there's still people that are a little bit hesitant and I, I honor that, you know? So it's part 9-11, people didn't want to come into the city. Um, they were afraid, afraid of terrorism. Then you're afraid of COVID. Then you, you know, then in the recession, you don't have the money that you can spend on, on the extra, you know, wonders of going to theater. It's a very expensive proposition to bring, uh, you know, to buy tickets. And, and if you wanna bring a family to see, you know, a musical, uh, it's a lot of money. And, and when things are, are tight, you know, theater's probably one of the top things that has to take a back seat for a while. It's all challenging. If it's not one thing, it's another. You know what they say, it's not one thing, it's your mother. <laughs> Uh, you just have to go through it. You have to be optimistic. I am an optimistic person. Uh, I certainly can get depressed with the times, but basically I see the glass half full. I think if you don't, you're in the wrong business. Yeah. And what is the process like of sort of picking the price point and ticket price for different shows? And um, Well, that's something that's pretty much done by the, you know, in collaboration with the general management team that you're working with and what the going rates are for Broadway versus off-Broadway. You know, you're, everyone is discounting tickets. So you figure out certain performances that you can discount maybe deeper than others. Uh, and there are people now that are specializing in, in consulting on just those questions. Uh, it's not arbitrary. And so I would love to ask about a great star that you worked with in her one woman show on Broadway, which was B. Arthur. Who oh, <laughs> I love B. Arthur. Well, that was a joy and a real privilege, an honor, in fact. Um, she came to me and said that she'd love to do this one person show she's been thinking about. And her uh, very good friend and piano accompanist was someone that I had met, which is how she came to me. and. Um, I tell you, she was so professional. She was so diligent. Every night I would stop by the theater and, um, and she was in her dressing room. She would go through the entire play every single night before she went on. Wow. Every single night she went through every line. It was incredible to watch. And she hit her mark. I mean, she just turned on a dime every single time she got the laugh exactly in the same place every night. Uh, you know, the raised eyebrow at the same moment every time. I mean, she was so professional. I just, I marveled, I marveled. And the thing that was really incredible, which people know now, but we didn't know then, is she had already been diagnosed uh, and she was ill. She didn't want anybody to know. And I think only her closest friends and maybe family knew. Uh, and that's why she wanted to do the show. Anyway, she was remarkable. I remember, <laughs> this was funny. She didn't really have a costume. She wanted to wear her own clothes and she wanted to be very comfortable on stage. So we talked about what she'd like to wear, what she'd like to look like. She said, you know, I like these sort of big kimono, caftani kind of thing that I, with pants. And, and she said to me, and um, Daryl, you know, I'm not gonna be wearing shoes. And I said, oh, okay. She said, yeah, I'm not comfortable in shoes. <laughs> And then the funniest thing was not really at the time, we did a performance and she actually tripped off the stage and she broke a toe. Oh. And so in fact, she didn't wear shoes because she couldn't put her shoes on and she was happy about it. Cause I thought, okay, you don't want to wear shoes. That's a little odd. 
but okay, we'll put a rug uh, as part of the set so that it's comfortable for you. You know, you're not walking on a bare wooden floor. Anyway, she was just a, just a marvelous person. I'm, I'm lucky that I had that chance to work with her. And, um, and we stayed in touch after the show was over. Um, she's just one of the great ones. There's no other way to say it. And how often do you go to see the shows you're producing, especially if it's a very long run like Kinky Boots? Well, in the original Kinky Boots, um, I was probably there four out of seven nights. I'm not necessarily staying for the entire show, although sometimes it was hard for me to leave, but I would stand in the wings and be able to share the joy of it all. And you mentioned that your son, Jordan Roth, is, of course, the head of Drew Jansen, which is so wonderful. And what is it like to have it be sort of the family business in that way? <laughs> well, he's he's amazing. He's he's taken the company to great heights. He has exquisite taste. Uh, the shows that he has chosen for the theaters have stayed for years and years and years. Um, you know, and he's he's very smart. He has his finger on the pulse of what people want. Um, and you know, when he started, when he took over Drew Jamson, he was in his thirties, he was a young man and um, he's done a great job. I'm very proud of him. And this might be sort of an impossible question to answer, but are there shows that you've produced off Broadway that you especially felt should have come to Broadway that didn't? Well, I'll answer it in a funny way. It's one show that I produced off Broadway, How I Learned to Drive, did come to Broadway 20 years later. Oh, yes. When we did a co-production with Manhattan Theatre Club, I had promised Paula Vogel years ago that the show would go to Broadway one day. And um, so I was able to make good on that promise 20 years later. <laughs> but basically, I have to answer the question in a different way, too, because a lot of the shows that are off-Broadway belong off-Broadway because they want an intimate setting. They want to be experienced by an audience in close contact. They want to feel like you're in it in a different way than, you know, a 1200 or 1400 seat or 2000 seat theater would make you feel. So I don't really have too many shows that I did off Broadway that I thought should have. And what was it like to be working with the same actors on that show all those years later? Well, that was the idea. That was my idea because I wanted to show that knowing the story of how I learned to drive you know, knowing the story that women later in their life still had the story to tell and it still hurt and it still needed to come out. And so, which we saw in real life with all the women that are talking about sexual harassment and, and things that had happened to them when they were younger, they weren't able to talk about it for many, many years later. Or if they were able to talk about it, people weren't believing them. So the story was as relevant told through the voice of a 20 year old as it was a 40 year old or a 30 year old, you know, and a 50 year old story didn't change. So it was very important for me that Mary Louise and David Morse told the story again, that I thought was part of the, part of the strength and the import, I guess I would say, uh, I just thought that would be remarkable. Oh, yeah. It was almost like a reunion. Did you find that you experienced sort of sexism being one of the few female producers on Broadway at the beginning? And I personally did not find sexism being what I experienced. What I experienced was a different kind of uh, feeling, which was more about I wasn't qualified to be there. Wow. Who are you? Where did you come from? What's your background? What's your training? You haven't worked up through the ranks. You just kind of came on the scene. And, you know, I used to say I was emulating the Nike commercial. I just did it. Uh, you know, and I, I just did it. I just did it closer than ever. And it's true. I didn't train to be in theater. I wasn't a general manager. Uh, I wasn't an actor. I wasn't a director. I didn't come from theater. I just came from loving theater and being passionate about theater. So I experienced a lot of that. And also, I don't think it was because I was a woman. I think it was just because people didn't, you know, think I had the experience and why did I feel that I could do this? It was more like that. 
I mean, there weren't many women producers anyway, so I would be, you know, that wasn't so much my problem. I didn't see it that way. Anyway, what hurt me more was people not believing in me. So I had to believe in myself. That was really the issue. You know, 32 years later, I think I proved myself. So, <laughs> yes. <what definitely>. <laughs> you um, mentioned this concept of a sort of cast reunion with How I Learned to Drive. And another thing that was a little bit like that, except only with the star, was Sunset Boulevard. And what was that like to be working with Glenn Close when she came back? <laughs> well, I wasn't involved that much in the production, but I, I, I know Glenn. And so I was... I was more like a friend of the court. <laughs> I was more a friend of the court than I was involved in the production. And we were talking earlier about Life of Pi, and I know that's a show that's transferring from London, and so is yes. a few others that you've worked on. And what do you think is sort of different about the London theatre scene and at the same time makes it such a good sort of breeding ground for? Well... In the case of The Life of Pi, I think that this particular production, um, which is now at ART in Cambridge, uh, sort of we're doing our out of town tryout here, there, uh, and it will come to Broadway. For me, that was such an important story. I remember reading the book and being just so, uh, just so knocked out by the, the morality of it all and, and you know, the underlying story and the emotional impact of it that when I saw it in London, I, I just saw it come to life in a way that I hadn't even envisioned. Um, and so I, I don't know the way they just put it together. It, it's, it's the way I felt when War Horse uh, was done in London first before Lincoln Center did it actually. It was just so breathtaking. I don't know, theater in London also for the audience members is much more natural. It's, you know, people just grow up going to the theater. It's not such a big deal. Sometimes I feel bad because, you know, Broadway is such an event, partly because of the expense, I understand. But in London, people just grow up with theater, you know, and it's, it's just like part of the culture and it's part of what you do. And it's all exciting and wonderful. And the other thing, a lot of the London runs are not as long. So you get to see a lot more. You know, they'll do a play for a period of time and then it's not considered a hit or a miss if it doesn't run a long time. Some things just don't, you know, they're limited engagements and so many more things can happen. Um, and then the National Theatre does wonderful work in the bridge now and the Almeida and the Young Vic, the Old Vic. I mean, there's just the Dunmar. Uh, there's great theatre being done. I, I transferred a play in the middle of the pandemic from the Dunmar. It was called Blindness. Oh, it was the first play to open in the midst of it all because there was nobody in it. It was the voice of, this was really remarkable. It was the voice of Juliet Stevenson that you would hear on sterilized earphones. And you sat two chairs together, six feet apart from the other two chairs. And the way it was set up was very safe in COVID, you know, in the midst of COVID restrictions. And it was a breathtaking tale that you listened to through these earphones and you felt as though the surround sound that was created uh, for the production at the Dunmar, which I brought to my theater on 15th Street, was remarkable. It was just remarkable. And there were brave people that were willing to come and experience it. Um, everything was sanitized. Uh, people were sitting you know, far away from one another. You would sit in a pod with, you'd buy two tickets together. You had to buy two tickets. You could either come with someone else or you could sit by yourself with two seats um, and it was safe. Anyway, it was great. The other thing that, speaking of transfers, I don't know if you um, heard of Titanic, which oh, yeah. Transferred, yeah, transferred from a smaller theater to my theater on 15th Street now, which is 300 seats or 299 specifically. And it's doing really, really well. And that's an example of going not that much bigger, keeping the intimacy, but bigger enough so that it could be commercially successful. And it is a riot. I'm not the producer, I'm the landlady in this case. I'm happy to be so, happy to be so. It's just, it's a lot of fun, a lot of fun. So I guess the question was really about when things transfer and, and you know, how that works. 
and London Theater. I love London Theater. I, I'm lucky enough to be able to go once or twice a year and see what's going on there. Um, I saw Leopoldstadt in London before it came here. I saw uh, The Good Doctor, which I know is coming here, uh, not under my auspices, but I'm glad so people will see that new play. It was wonderful. Uh, and it stars, funnily enough, Juliet Stevenson, who was the voice in Blindness. And how did you come to own this theater on 15th Street and have it named after you and all that? Well, that goes back to one of your earlier questions about producing off-Broadway. At the time, 25 years ago, there were more off-Broadway shows than theaters available. And I was, as I said, producing off-Broadway and I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could find another theater? We need it. The off-Broadway community needs another theater. And I was looking for quite a long time. And then one day I happened to be walking along the Union Square area and I saw a for sale sign. It was like, I didn't believe what I saw, a for sale sign on this beautiful big bank, the Union Square Savings Bank on the corner of 15th Street and Union Square. And I said, this bank is for sale? <laughs> I wrote down the number of the broker and I called and they said, we just put that sign up. It was meant to be a blues nightclub, but the neighborhood was against it because they thought the residential part of the neighborhood would be you know, up all night with loud music and this and that. And so the people didn't get the variance, the people that were planning to put up the blues restaurant, the jazz, whatever it was called, I don't remember, didn't get the variance the neighborhood was objecting. And so they sold, they wanted to sell the building. And that's where I came in. <laughs> that's how it happened. And what is the process like of choosing sort of what goes in that theater? And Well, it happened very uh, organically. Before I was able to outfit the theater or build it into a proper theater with seats, I was approached uh, by a young man, David Binder, who now works at BAM. Many years ago, he came to me and he said, I, I have this really unique piece of theater it's kind of acrobats flying from the ceiling and they need a big space that's high and doesn't have any seats in it. And you've got that before you build your theater, would you consider renting it to Della Guarda is what it was called. And Della Guarda came and stayed for nine years. And so that's how my theater started and that's how people knew it. And then after Della Guarda, they created another one of the same ilk called Ferza Bruta. And that stayed for another many, many, many years. And that's how my theater got started. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know that you have also worked with the New York State Arts Council. And what is it like to sort of be more on the government level with looking at theater and, and all that? Um, well, that was a nice opportunity for me to actually give away money rather than raise money. <laughs> that was really nice. I was asked to be on this committee that uh, reviewed some of the uh, nonprofit organizations that were working in different communities uh, across New York and, um, and give them money. The budget was one that was divvied up in different ways. And the committee that I sat on was responsible for reviewing the, um, the requests so it was a great opportunity. I was on that committee for, on the, uh, I guess about four years was my term. And it was wonderful being able to offer sustenance to some of these small and, you know, interesting arts organizations uh, that work mostly in underserved areas. That was, that was what was so great about it. Oh, yeah. yeah. What is the process like for you and what do you like or dislike about the process of raising money and, and finding backers? I don't like any of it. <laughs> I find it really difficult and really hard. Um, over these years, I've built a wonderful group of investors who, who you know have kind of come to support the kind of work that I do. So that's great. But it's a big responsibility, especially when you lose other people's money. It really is hurtful. Right. And yet it happens. And of course, everyone that invests in theater knows that that's a risky business. Um, and so it will happen, but it still is very hard for me. Um, it's my least favorite thing about producing. 
what do you also like or dislike about the fact that today there are many sort of more producers credited for Wang show rather than mm -hmm. in the old days when it used to be just David Merrick or Alex Cohen or something like that? Well, the good news is that that's the only way we can raise money for these productions is by having a number of people involved. That's the good news, that there are people willing to do it. The bad news for me is that everyone that gets named as a co-producer on the billing page of the Playbill is not really a producer. They are really investors, but they have decided that because they get the title of co-producer that they're producers, but they don't really work on the show. And it's a bit of a misnomer. Some do and some don't. So there's no division. You don't really know when you look at the Playbill and see 35 names above the title, who's really doing the work. Now that said, the production couldn't happen without all of those 35 people because they all put money in. You have to really admire the people that are willing to take a chance on theater and, and raise the money or put in their own money. And, and I guess the problem that a lot of producers that really work at producing have is that you know there are people that will run around saying, oh, I produce kinky boots because their name's on the billing page, but really they just raised money for kinky boots and they're not really producing it, for example. But as I said, you can't live without them. Right. And so how do you feel about both um, reviews and awards and how they both sort of affect the success of a show? And Reviews are important. Uh, because the audience members need some way to gauge whether or not that particular piece of theater is something they want to spend their money on and go and see. So it's very important that the people that are reviewing are responsible and not just using their personal likes and dislikes, but rather given a thoughtful and intelligent overview of, of what it is that they're critiquing. Uh, Reviews are important. I think that awards are a nice way to honor the work that's being done. I think awards are valuable. I think it gives credibility to people in their hard work and it just acknowledges the work. Yeah. I don't think it makes such a big difference in terms of you know getting an audience other than the Tony Award, I think. If you get a Tony Award for best musical, you can usually take that to the bank. Um, <laughs> You know, and that's that's great. I hope to win a few more before I'm <laughs> Yes, well, I'd love to close with one more question, which is um, what advice would you give to somebody just starting out in the industry? That's such a good question. And I've been asked that before. And I think the best answer I can give is to be sure that you're passionate about what you choose to produce, that you only choose projects that mean something to you personally in the hope that they will be meaningful to others and that you are not afraid to fail and i use that word and i'll put it in quotes because i don't mean it in a negative way but you're not afraid to take a chance and if it doesn't work get up and do it again don't be afraid of that because this is a business of highs and lows hills and valleys um, every time you produce something, it's not going to be the hit you hope for. But if you're doing it for the right reasons, and if you are passionate about the work, and you, you love the story that this particular play or musical is telling, then you're doing it for all the right reasons. So keep that in mind. And also, I would add, find people that you really want to work with and that you enjoy sharing your journey with. You know, you need to put a team together, general managers and people that are going to work on advertising and marketing and, and you know, now social media and put a team together of co-producers that have a, a shared vision and want to work hard and don't make it a lonely profession because the best part of theater is that you're sharing it with other people in the making of the theater and then you're sharing it with the wider audience. And I think that's something to keep in mind, you know. Um, don't make it a lonely business. Make it, make it joyful, because it's hard. It's really hard. And you know, find the joy where you can. Create it for yourself. But most of all, just do what you love. Don't do a project because somebody comes to you and says, "Would you like to co-produce this? I think it's really going to make a lot of money." That's not the right way to go forward. Um, 
I would also add, I've said this to young people, they don't really like this answer, but I've said, if you try it and you give it a really good whirl and you don't feel that it's for you, that's okay. Sometimes a left turn is the right turn. Thank you so much for doing this. It's been such an honor and a pleasure too. Thank you. Your questions are very thoughtful and and very well researched. I'm quite impressed. (gasps) Thank you. Listeners, thank you for tuning in and remember to come back next time when I am joined by Broadway and opera star Paulo Sott. Paulo Sott is currently starring as Lance in the smash hit and Juliet on Broadway, and his other credits on The Great White Way include South Pacific opposite Kelly O'Hara and Chicago as Billy Flynn. He has also performed around the world at venues including the Metropolitan Opera, La Scala di Milano, and Liceo de Barcelona, and the operas that he's performed in include Don Giovanni, Pagliacci, La Boheme, Carmen, Cozy Fantute, and more. Make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.